As fall fills up with activities and obligations, even a small time saver can feel like a big help. Grammarly is an all-in-one writing tool that makes clear, concise communication easier than ever, so you can finish your work earlier and head off to family dinners, social events, and fall weddings. Grammarly is free to download and works where you do, so every project gets finished quicker. Make sure your writing is free of mistakes with Grammarly's free, comprehensive writing suggestions and get an instant take on how your message comes across with the free tone detector. Let Grammarly Premium's sentence clarity rewrites help you find the perfect words on the first try. You'll be confident writing client emails, deadline-driven reports, and presentations without staying late at the office. Get more time back in your day by writing with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcasts to sign up for a free account. Then get 20% off when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium. That's Grammarly.com slash podcasts. The way to think about the National Security Advisor's job is as the conductor of an orchestra. And it's difficult to see Mike Flynn, for example, effectively bringing out a range of ideas in the interagency, encouraging criticism of plans as they go forward to make sure you get the most robust approaches. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power and Hisham Mellum, a columnist for the Al-Arabiya News Channel in Washington and correspondent for the Lebanese daily Anahar. And calling into the studio from her hot tub in Palo Alto is FP columnist Gori Shaki, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution where she focuses on military history. Thank you, ER nerds, for continuing to submit your best ideas for podcast episodes. Drop us a line about Trump or not or anything at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com if you have an idea or a comment. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So, guys, the national security apparatus of the most powerful country on earth is coming into focus. Isn't that exciting? Well, it was exciting to you actually did the focus. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> Maybe there is a third book. Yeah, yeah. There is a third book for you. Yeah, no, for me, if you write books about national security, this is like great. It's good for business. This is yeah. like the Kardashians hit the National Security Council. <laughs> That's exactly the right metaphor, David. No, it is. Look, there's diversity. I don't know what people are complaining about. There's diversity in the Trump pick so far. These old white guys, some of them hate Muslims, but some of them hate blacks. <laughs> some of them hate Jews. Yes, yeah, some of them hate Jews. Yeah, exactly. Well, everybody and they hates also the Jews. Have commonality, as David suggests. Yeah, but that's that's what passes for diversity. But let's just take some of these picks and explore them, and then try to extrapolate. Okay, General Mike Flynn, David, you've been in the intelligence business for a while. How intelligent is he? Mike Flynn is an interesting case. So he was the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is the lar- one of the largest of the uh, intel agencies and the one you hear about the least because its primary focus is defending American forces, collecting intelligence that could defend American forces. Um, during the time that he was a DIA director, I spent a fair bit of time with him. 
And uh, he was focused very much on how uh, terror groups, whether it was al-Qaeda or whether in the later years ISIS, although he was leaving as ISIS was just uh, on the rise, could actually hit and kill American forces in the Middle East. That's the upside, which is that he understands that issue pretty well. And actually, you have to give him credit, warned correctly that the Obama administration was not paying enough attention to ISIS at, at the time. The downside is it turns out that the National Security Council does a lot of other things other than just counterterrorism. Uh, things that might be of a more direct existential threat to the United States. I only know this, David, from reading your books. So. That's how anybody knows any of this. Yeah, right. Um, a little bit from talking to Corey. Um, so <laughs> so uh, it turns out that it's also supposed to coordinate among competing organizations, something he has never done. It also turns out it deals a lot with uh, China in all of the layers of that relationship from economic to strategic to military, which he has not done. Uh, it deals with uh, Europe, which – and in all of the complexity as we are concerned about the future of NATO, which he has not done. Wait, I thought he, I thought he has done Europe. He, he seems to like Putin a lot and he was a lobbyist for Erdogan. He ha since he left the DIA, he started up something called the Flynn Intel Group. Um, they did a lot of work for Erdogan. He gave a speech for Russia Today, which is the state-run um, – uh, sort of English language Russian uh, house organ and ended up sitting two, uh, two people away from Putin at a dinner. Uh, I'm not sure whether they actually talked, but the photograph has sort of tracked him through this entire campaign. Corey, I was reading a story yesterday that said that in his capacity as an advisor to Donald Trump, Flynn had spiked some names that had come up for potential national security jobs. One of them was General Mattis, your former co-author on the book. Uh, another was Pete Pace. Another was, uh, I guess, the other Admiral Michael Rogers, um, et cetera. That tells us a little bit about how he gets along with his former colleagues. And, and I'm wondering how you interpret all of that. Well, I think Mike Flynn is actually going to have um, a difficult time with active duty military folks and retired military folks for a couple of reasons. First, because I think the way he did his job when he was still on active duty, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the challenges of trying to reorient an organization and that that can make a lot of people unhappy and that that doesn't necessarily make him bad at that job. But what I believed I saw uh, in in reading David's very good coverage of this, was that he's somebody who didn't seem to believe that this that the president of the United States had the right to ignore the advice of his military leadership. And in civil military relations, that's a very dangerous aggregation of responsibility to the uniforms instead of to the suits that we elect to run the country. The second reason I think he's going to be problematic is that he's so obviously during the campaign 
introduced the norms of American civil military relations. And the military leadership, Marty Dempsey, the retired chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Joe Dunford, the current chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and most of the military folks of my acquaintance believed that the way he was using the mili- his military experience for partisan political purposes is actually bad for the American military. It reduces public confidence in the institution, and it makes it much harder for, for military leaders to have the trust of their elected political superiors. Well, okay, maybe he's got a few problems there with what, what, what David says and what Corey says, but Hisham, you know, you cover another part of the world, and and I'm sure they're much more open-minded. And when they listen to the tape of General Mike Flynn saying that Islam is not a religion. It's a cancer. It's a political ideology. Masquerading masquerading as a cancer. (laughs) Right. But but he, he calls Islam a cancer and not a religion. I don't know. Because I'm from New Jersey, so you're going to have to walk me through this. Do you think anybody in the Middle East might find this offensive? This is going to be extremely difficult for him to deal with Middle Eastern leaders. Although his support for Erdogan is is, is kind of uh, uh, interesting, giving his anti-Islamic views, he's not opposed to radical Islamist jihadi movements like most of us are. He is opposed to Islam as a religion because he doesn't believe it's a religion, that it is a cancer, and it's a political ideology masquerading as religion. Um, He believes that the fear of Islam is rational, and uh, this is not Islamophobia. And uh, I think uh, there is a problem with his temperament. I mean, I heard former military officers who dealt with him who complained about his temperament and his behavior after he left the service, uh, working for uh, the Turkish government at a time when Erdogan is embarking on the most repressive campaign in the, the, in the modern history of Turkey as a state. Right. This isn't and then, good Erdogan that, that Obama fell in love with. Exactly. This is exactly. when we discovered that Erdogan was really a bad guy. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Right. And, and, and uh, uh, also his praise of Putin. I mean, he's similar to uh, the president-elect. And my fear is that uh, Flynn could develop into an Iago whispering in the ears of the president-elect all sorts of negative things, if not even evil things, you know, as Iago would do. And so uh, while the the autocrats of the region are happy in celebrating the arrival of the dawn of uh, the, the Trump era, those who are going to deal with Flynn uh, are going to be surprised if he's going to uh, prescribe to, to, to these uh, incredible views uh, uh, of Islam. He, he, he will be corroborating the views of al-Qaeda and ISIS that the West is engaged in a crusade, quote-unquote, campaign against the Muslim world. He, he, he is justifying that. He is, he is corroborating that. He's, uh, he is a vindication of their worst nightmares and, 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 and lousy propaganda against the West. Okay, so let's set So flip. it's all good. It's all good. It's looking great. It's looking great. Cece is happy, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. No, no. If you're an autocrat, Trump, it's like ding, ding, ding. This no, is... I mean, the autocrats are happy. I mean, we have, a, we have a confederacy of autocrats in the region and beyond who are extremely happy and no, celebrating no, no. Well, the also, of Trump. And Trump, you know, Trump doesn't even realize this. This buffoon is sitting there in his gilded palace, and, 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 and he doesn't realize that everything the president-elect does 
is foreign policy. So that when he sends out a tweet beating up on the New York Times, sorry, David, I'm sure that probably it, ruined it ruins every one of my mornings. Yeah, yeah. right. But <laughs> if he sends out a tweet beating up on the New York Times, he may think, oh, this is just zany me, Donald, campaigner. This is what people love about me. But the rest of the world, people like Erdogan say, oh, the president the of the United States the is beating up on the media now. The Why president of the United it? States is trying to intimidate the media. It's OK. It's sure. open season on sure. the media. Sure. You know? And the nepotism of including his daughter in the meeting with the Japanese prime minister, like it all looks recognizable. No, it does look recognizable. It looks like, you know, the Qaddafi regime. You pick it's it. All, it's all in the family, Corey. It's yeah, all in the exactly. family. I mean, today I tweeted that, you know, his White House is beginning to look like an Arab, that, that the palace of an Arab ruler where the family <laughs> rules and, and, and lives on a staple of xenophobia and Islam and, and uh, conspiracy right, theories. Right. And then Ivanka goes and gets to sell trinkets. Here, buy this bracelet. <laughs> you know, and it's the same the one. Same interior designers, too. Oh, my God. It's <laughs> repulsive. But... Medieval, we're, medieval. <laughs> it's medieval. We're objective. So let's just move on for a second. You know, a couple of days ago, given when this podcast will be released, you know, the, he also he named uh, Pompeo as the head of the CIA, Mike, Mike Pompeo. That's right. Um, a congressman from Kansas, right? Congressman from Kansas. And, uh, and when, who seems to me to be extremely well qualified to be the CIA director since given how little we know about his career, he seems to have a real talent for the covert. Well, good at being hidden, good at being hidden. Many um, listeners to the ER may not know much about Mike Pompeo because I don't but think— But our nerds are, our nerds they are, are really They are pretty nerdy, to, but, you know, I don't think that we've discussed him before, at least on any show that I've been on. So let me just give you a little bit of biography, and that may help you sort of um, take off from this. He uh, went to West Point, uh, signed up as a teenager, went to Harvard Law School, then went back to Kansas and had two different companies that he was uh, deeply involved in, uh, one of which made a lot of uh, oil field uh, equipment, and then ran for Congress in 2010, and he came in in the Tea Party wave. And the most interesting part, David, is he was financed by the Koch brothers, by and large. He got, I think, $80,000 in that first campaign. He's had several hundred thousand dollars uh, since. So one way to look at this appointment is remember the Koch brothers were not exactly enthused about Donald Trump's rise. And this may be a gift to them to bring in one of their favorites. In fact, I don't think there's anybody in Congress that I can think of, I may be wrong on this, uh, who has gotten more support from the Koch brothers over the well, years. Well, he's gotten payback from Pompeo, right? But didn't, a little bit. I mean, didn't um, Pompeo write an article in defense of the Koch brothers? The, Pompeo wrote an article in in. Politico saying, you know, don't beat up on the Koch brothers who financed me. That's, uh, that's kind of beautiful. But yeah. he has distinguished himself in one way. He was a real courageous leader in the great Benghazi investigations, well, he, wasn't he? he? He was part of the Benghazi special committee. He didn't think it went far enough. Now, it's interesting. The committee report was written in part by uh, Representative Mike Rogers, who you may remember was ousted uh, early on in this transition process. And he wrote uh, – Pompeo wrote a dissent in which he basically said this didn't go far enough in blaming Hillary Clinton and her State Department. But one of the more didn't, interesting things didn't. is if you go back to January 2009 – this goes more directly to his CIA role – he criticized uh, the president's decision in 2009 to shut down the black site prisons, which is where 
the U.S. did uh, the interrogation and, water- and, and the waterboarding, yes. and to, to require the interrogators to adhere to all the anti-torture laws and use only these um, interrogation techniques that are approved in the Army Field uh, Manual. So, in 2014, he told he said that uh, President Obama had refused to take the war on radical Islamic terrorism seriously. So he's going to be of a mind with with Mike Flynn. But what's going to be really interesting is this. The current head of the CIA, John Brennan, has said that if any one of his successors tried to bring back waterboarding, the techniques used during uh, the Bush administration, he thought that the CIA rank and file would be in an uprising, wouldn't follow the orders. Actually, well, th- this is what Ma- General Michael Hayden said. Too. And Hayden has said this as well. So here suddenly we have a new CIA director who um, basically was critiquing Obama for closing the black sites and uh, lightening up on the interrogation techniques. So, Corey, if I recall my high school geometry class, and by the way, if I do, that's a bit of a miracle, but if I recall it correctly, it said two points define a line. So once we start, you know, now that we've got two national security appointments, we're starting to see some tendencies here. How would you analyze what we've seen so far and how would you extrapolate that line? Yeah. So I have a couple of thoughts on that. The first is that I think the appointments so far are cause for concern that the president is surrounding himself with people who agree with his views and and will assiduously work to carry them out, which is absolutely an elected president's right. But but by choosing to populate his his cabinet and his national security team that way, he makes himself comfortable with their advice, but he makes himself unlikely to have restraints built into the system when he has bad ideas or is about to make bad choices. Um, what I learned reading David Rothkopf's very good books about national about the National Security Council and its staff is that Did you pay her to say that? <laughs> yes, 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 we do pay her to say that. <laughs> Just wanted that, you know. I didn't, I didn't think it was the Koch brothers who had done that. that. Yeah. Um, is that the uh, the president certainly entitled? He deserves to have a team around him who believe in his agenda and will work assiduously to carry it out. But two big problems, I think potentially loom for our president-elect Trump. The first is if you surround yourself only with people who do share your agenda, um, that you are unlikely to be resilient, to be to have the steadiness to avoid big mistakes. And I think that's a serious concern in a Trump administration. The recklessness of a lot of the people he is surrounding himself with will tend towards big mistakes. And the second thing I think I see looking at these appointments is that uh, their salvation, our salvation against the big mistakes that I think are likely tendencies given this this set of people is that they are 
unlikely to be able to briskly and efficiently run the mechanism of the American government. I think they will have a really hard time getting things done because they're both inexperienced and temperamentally unsuited to the kinds of processes that David's books bring out so nicely. Right? The way to think about the national security advisor's job is as the conductor of an orchestra. And it's difficult to see Mike Flynn, for example, effectively bringing out a range of ideas in the interagency, encouraging criticism of plans as they go forward to make sure you get the most robust approaches. Well, the best national security advisor we've had, General Brent Scowcroft, actually said there were two jobs there, right? One was managing the process, but the other was advising the president. So part of the issue here is what kind of advice the president is going to get. And it's particularly important when you have a president who's kind of a blank slate on this stuff, uh, except for a few impulses that he's got. Um, now, Hisham, you look at this, and, and, and there does seem to be a pattern here, you know. These guys come from the most extreme wing of the Republican Party in the United States. These guys, uh, you know, these are the, you know, the, the, you know Pompeo is a guy who thought that the in Benghazi idiocy, the waste of millions of dollars over Benghazi, didn't go far enough, that we should have been more idiotic. Flynn has these extreme views on Islam. Pompeo has also expressed some really grotesque views on Islam. Say you're, I don't know, the chief publicity guy for ISIS. Okay, <laughs> not, not that you would be offered that job. But say you're the chief publicity guy for ISIS and you're looking at this 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 constellation that's forming around you can throw in Steve Bannon by the way. Oh. Um, how, how do how does how do you write that story for recruitment? Do you, I mean may, maybe I'm just one of those liberal elitists and it's like you know I, it, I've got too, it completely it's good, wrong. It's too good to believe for ISIS. I mean these are these are these are the kind of characters that they will they will come up with uh, you know they will invent. To recruit people, look. This is very alarmist. I mean, uh, cause for alarm. And this is revisionism, and it's it run amok. Uh, here you have people who have uh, this uh, sordid view of 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 the world, and uh, they are going to reinforce each other's phobias and each other's uh, fears. Uh, there will be no contrarian views. And uh, but what makes this really alarming is the fact that the president has no experience and no knowledge of international affairs or national security issues. Uh, can you imagine a briefing where somebody is trying to explain to him what are the differences between the Shias and the Sunnis or the Yazidis and or or, or, or even the Druze and the Jews? I mean, honestly, uh, this <laughs> there's, is, a dirth, there's a difference. Yeah, between yeah. The and the <laughs> well, I mean, they rhyme at least. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, this David, is really- by the way, your tweet on the Sunni Shia business was very funny. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Thank you. <laughs> so th- this is really cause for for uh, for, for alarm. You talked about Brent Scowcroft, who's the golden uh, gold standard, right? But then you had in George Bush, a man of the world, a tremendous experience, CIA, UN ambassadorship, and then you had you, you had uh, you had. Uh, Jim Baker on one hand, you had Scowcroft on the other hand, you had a, a wise man at the top. Yeah, Brent Scowcroft. E- even, Brent- even Cheney was contained in that group, okay? And, and then now you have this, 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 uh, this team at a time when the world is dominated by the autocrats from Moscow to, to India to, to, uh, uh, to Turkey to Egypt, not to mention the Chinese. This is really um, a not-so-brave 
world. And at a time when we, re- we need steady, uh, you know, tempered uh, 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 men and women at, in, in positions of authority in the United States, we're going to end up with, uh, with this team. I mean, the beginning is really cause for anxiety and alarm. Yeah, I mean, temperament is one thing. And I, you're absolutely right. And I totally agree, obviously, with everything that Corey says, quoting directly from my books. Um, but, but I'm kidding. But 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 the 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 temperament is is an issue. A more deeply worrisome issue is character. Um, it's it's what are the core beliefs of these people? And the core beliefs of these people are racist and intolerant. In fact, I I joke that the diversity so far within the group of old white men that surround Trump is that some hate Muslims, whereas others hate. Jews and blacks and so forth, as we said at the, at, at the outset. Bannon extends this. Now, I think that what they'll try to do, apparent, I mean, it looks like this, and I don't know when we'll post this. We may post this a little bit early, given the news cycle. But, but, but one of the things that you know, they'll try to do is they may try to make a more moderate-seeming secretary of state. But some of their ideas on Secretary of State so far have been kooky. Now, fortunately, the Giuliani idea seems to be on the way out because that's a kooky idea, Mm -hmm. no experience, wrong personality and so forth. But it's not killed off yet. It's not killed off. No, I understand. Gingrich, the Gingrich has pulled himself, dropped out. He's unconfirmable. There's no way even this Republican Senate can confirm someone as damaged in terms of character and and, and, morality. Right, right. So he's he's a little cracked. Then they threw out this Nikki Haley idea, Mm -hmm. which is worth commenting on. never serious. Well, it may not have been serious, but, you know, I was was like at MSNBC when they were doing it and Joe Scarborough called in and said, well, they're serious. My sources – you know, who's his source? But my sources inside the campaign say that it's going to be Nikki Haley. And – you know, Nikki Haley has less foreign policy experience than not only than Rudy Giuliani, but actually the nice woman who clean, comes to clean my apartment every couple of weeks uh, has more foreign policy experience than Nikki Haley. But Nikki Haley, how, I just want to ask you guys, why do you think Nikki Haley's name was on the list? Because she's a woman and... and No, go on. Keep saying it. What else is she? She's... A governor, and she's an Indian American. She's an Indian American. Exactly. This is this diversity. Kind of this is weird, diversity. This is like sort of quasi racist culturalist, you know, reverse psychology where it's like, oh, well, one of her parents is from someplace else, so she could do foreign policy. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I I don't agree with this line of argument that. That in democratic administrations, uh, counting up diversity is a thing to be applauded. I'm all for counting be, up I diversity. Think it should be I, applauded here too. I'm all and, for diversity. I'm, that wasn't my point. I, I you and, know, and, and I actually think to Nikki, be a good Secretary of State, is perfectly plausible. Um, they. One of the really important things the Secretary of State does is represent America's ideas to the world. And she doesn't have to have had long experience in diplomacy to do that well. In fact, being a governor makes one a reasonably good diplomat. I I think the the expertise required for Secretary of State could be well argued that 
being a governor, which gives you some executive experience, might make you a better secretary of state than having been on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, because you could at least run the department well. Okay, well, without getting into the the, 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 the weeds of that discussion, because I actually think you need to know something about the world and have some historical context and have context, uh, context overseas and know how the building runs and a whole bunch of other things. And I don't think we should have the on-the-job training for people and jobs that are this important. But let's set that aside for a second. Corey, name for me a secretary of state who had less experience than Nikki Haley at foreign policy. Or name for me somebody who's even comparable. We don't, we don't name secretaries of state who come from that kind of background. It has just never happened. That's true. There are a lot of secretaries okay. of Just state name. in the 19th century who were uh, judges before they became secretary of state or elected members of Congress I, I before they— I give you a more modern one. First of all, I love it when Corey goes to the 19th, to the 19th century. <laughs> it's no, it's, it's like good, a like, hallmark yeah, of but, this but, show. It, it is, but it also makes David, World War. It makes David <laughs> feel good because you're back to secretaries he covered as a young man. Yeah, but it's— <laughs> you know, uh, but, right. but I was going to try— Try this one, Corey. How about Jim Baker, who was a terrific Secretary of State, but did not have a whole lot of foreign. Po- he had basically been working the oil fields with uh, uh, prior George to Bush, uh, excuse me prior to dude, the time he was no, not true. So, so, right ahead. Yeah, what was his job in the Reagan administration? You no, know, I understand. He he had he had come in as as uh, Chief of Staff. And, he was the Deputy President uh, of the United States. That, I, I get that, but if you go back and look back across his history before he came into the White House, he was not a foreign policy. Now he was working for a president who had fairly deep foreign policy understanding, been in China, been CIA director. I think the the key question about the Secretary of State here, whether it was. Uh, Nikki Haley, which I, I said before, I, I don't think – I may be proven wrong by the time this is broadcast, but I don't think was a, a seriously floated idea. Or Mitt Romney, who I actually think could be a serious uh, I uh, competitor Romney. for that. And somebody who was you know run a U.S. Olympic Committee, which is one of the most political jobs in the United States uh, or, and, and internationally uh, and has run for president. But uh, I think the, here's the critical question. Supposing you are in a situation – where you have a secretary of state whose basic job is to run around the world and say, don't worry about all those people back in Washington. I know what you've read about Flynn. I know what you've read about, about uh, the president-elect himself. Don't worry about it. I'm here to make it good. But an administration that views the State Department as this outlier that is invested in the post-1945 experiment in internationalism and basically tries to wall it off. And I think that is a far higher risk, no matter who the secretary is, that the State Department basically – it turns out the State Department's got a lot of diplomats in it. I I didn't know this until recently. Uh, (laughs) and, And that is not sort of the first instincts of the people who will be in this White House. Well, but, no. but, but you want the Secretary of State like that at this crucial time and these I'm not saying times. you want it. I'm saying, and, I'm saying and, this and, is the biggest you know, risk. You mentioned Jim Baker. I mean, both of us covered him. Mm-hmm. And I think he's, he's the gold standard for I'm me. I'm way as, too young to have covered as, him. As, as, <laughs> as, a, as a Secretary of State. Jim Baker was the clone of George Bush. 
I watched Jim Baker go and talk to these tough guys in the Middle East he and was, beyond. He was and whatever he said, he delivered. And everybody knew. Yeah, but he was I mean, speaking for George Bush. He was very close to him. He was a diplomatic tsunami. Yeah, but I've listen, never seen anybody like him. Listen, also, Jim Baker, I, again, I, I hate to differ with David Sanger because he's he's a, one of America's leading journalists. But he doesn't actually Jim, Jim, care Jim, about differing. Jim with Baker was the deputy president of the United States, the chief of staff, and then the secretary of the treasury before he yes, became the secretary yeah. of the no, state. Yeah. I, I, I would say he had— He accumulated it in the years immediately ahead of the time he was secretary years. of the state. Let's not minimize it. Anyway, let's, let's, let's say this. These are tea leaves. We're reading the tea leaves. And so far, the tea leaves are suggesting an ideological bent— um, uh, that reflects the campaign rhetoric yes, of exactly. the president-elect during his campaign, and so it's saying, you know, there may, you know, he he's saying, well, I may not do what I said on Obamacare, and I may not do what I said on some other things, but certainly in terms of dealing with Islam, dealing with uh, the rest of the world, what he said on the campaign trail is what you get, and it seems like a loud, blustering, intolerant. U.S. foreign policy may be around the corner, right or wrong? On personnel, he's doing exactly that. He's bringing people who echo his own fears and his own prejudices and biases. And that's why it's extremely dangerous. And if we end up with people of the same cloth, so to speak, ideological bent at, defen- uh, at defense and, and state, then then you, you're going to have a national security team that is going to scare a lot of people in this country and abroad. It may please the autocrats, but it's not going to be good for the United States, especially at, the, at these tough times, at a time when you look at Europe and you find only one leader who may not be around next year. If, if Angela well, Merkel we're going to get to that on our, 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 our next show. We only have a minute or two left here and before we wrap this one up. But, Corey, there has been some good news. And the good news is oh. that Jeff Sessions, who's a terrible guy to be attorney general— was an even worse choice to be Secretary of Defense, and he won't be Secretary of Defense. I actually, in a rare instance, David, I disagree with your judgment. I would actually uh, be less concerned if he were Secretary of Defense, because that's an organization with lots of built-in competence and guardrails and a, a military so inculcated not to follow orders that are immoral or illegal, that I think there are built-in breaks there that I uh, I worry more with him as attorney general than I would have with him as secretary of defense. You don't think the FBI would stand up and not take a political role? Oh, never mind. Um, you, you know something, Corey? You make an excellent point. But I was going to ask you another question. It seems like then that moves up in the batter circle uh, with regard to the secretary of defense, Senator Tom Cotton who seven years ago was a first lieutenant in the United States Army. That's right. So I did a long uh, interview yesterday with Tom Cotton, a, a public interview at a Defense One um, event. And what so is Defense One? It, Defense One is a publication no, that's a part of the Atlantic. Yeah, uh, no, it's not. Uh, we don't right. even acknowledge its existence. Uh, sorry about that. So here's, here are my conclusions from that. First of all, one big difference from Jeff Sessions, uh, Corey, is that when you talk to Con- Tom Cotton, you can completely disagree with his approach to the world, his views on how we have to balance things out. But he is at least conversant with the modernization process of the Pentagon that 
Ash Carter and others have started. You can have a conversation about cyber with him. You can have a conversation about many of these other subjects. I can't imagine doing that with Jeff Sessions. Okay, I well, see you the argument. Good point. Okay, well, well, you know, there's 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 a cheerful, upbeat note, and we're just not going to get into the fact that Tom Cotton sent a letter to the Supreme Leader, the Supreme in Leader and said, "Let me explain to you how our system works." <laughs> <laughs> that, was, was that, that was one, one of the most outrageous episodes in recent. That was American a teaching history. moment. It was an interesting moment. <laughs> yeah, it was. This is uh, look. It's all going to sort out. Some of these things may have sorted out between the time we record this and the time that you listen to it. We'll keep talking about it. We hope you keep coming back. Come back for our next episode when we're going to talk about implications broader. Uh, of all of this. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Hisham. Thank you, David. Thank you, Corey. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining.